0: This is the Timepieces History Podcast, brought to you by Gudrun Lorette, the expert in using modern marketing methods for the traditional heritage sector. Each bite-sized show shares the story of a place, person or object from the past in around 10 minutes. And now, here's today's show. Hello and welcome to the Time and Pieces History Podcast. Today we haven't got much further than we were last week when we looked at Vindolanda. We're going to be looking at Hadrian's Wall. I'd love to know what you think of these episodes, so please come and find me on Twitter at Gudrun or leave me a comment on your audio player of choice. Alternatively, you can pop a message onto the relevant podcast page over at gudrunlorette.com forward slash podcast where you'll find the show notes, useful links and an episode transcript. No email address required to access that. So, along with Julius Caesar, the Emperor Hadrian is possibly one of the most famous Roman rulers. Hadrian took charge in 117 AD and ruled for 21 years. He travelled around almost the entire empire and made the strengthening and demarcation of borders a priority. His activities in the north of England built upon those of his predecessor, Trajan, who had overseen the laying of the roads. Years of civil unrest between the various tribes of Britain or Albion as they thought of themselves, coupled with rebellions against the Roman occupiers such as that led by Boudicca in AD 60, resulted in a powerful northern base controlled by kings who weren't easy to push around. It was clear that if Rome was going to strengthen its hold, a statement needed to be made. Hadrian is described as having a great interest in architecture and may have influenced the design of Ponzalius, the bridge over the Tyne which is named after him, Um, As well as our famous wall, he is responsible for a palace at Tivoli, uh, the Pantheon, which is a temple, and a mausoleum for his own burial. Hadrian visited more of his empire than any other emperor before or after him. In 122 AD, he was in the northeast to oversee the construction of the wall that took his name. Although the line of the wall followed that of the Tyne, it was actually laid as the emperor crossed the land, and it was Hadrian who chose most of the road and fort sites. The wall was constructed by three legions, the 20 Valeria Victrix, the 6 Victrix and the 2 Augusta, around 7,000 men in total. As we'll see later in the season, soldiers also had other skills, such as carpentry and stonemasonry. In his excellent book The Wall, author Alston Moffat explains that for every man actively engaged in building the wall, there were eight more supporting him, with tasks including the digging of ditches and the supplying of materials. Hadrian was making a point with his wall, and it was a huge undertaking for his troops. The building work was done fairly quickly, because systems were put in place and were expected to be followed. Centurions oversaw gangs of soldiers working, each with a clearly defined role. There were 15 men on the south side and the same on the north, each carrying out the same set of tasks. The stones were carried locally and transported along the river and then by cart the wall was constructed of shaped stones with their rounded end facing in, giving a smoother appearance to the outside. The two sides constructed by the gangs would have been filled with soil rubble and clay, and mortar, made from local limestone and sand, would have held it all together. The mortar had to be carried to the wall wet, as powdered lime can burn skin. If any spillage occurred during transportation, it could still do a lot of damage. The mortar would have been formed into cones and moved slowly and carefully in panniers attached to pack mules. I think what I found particularly interesting is that the entire wall was built at the same time, with gangs assigned to a section each, rather than starting at one end and working their way along the planned line until the wall was done. The wall, of course, wasn't just a wall. There were structures built all the way along, serving different purposes and of varying sizes. These structures were built first as they would have helped keep the wall following the line, and also because having protective buildings in place were handy in an area of local unrest. There were also several gates through the wall, and these were complex to construct, as Moffat explains. They were arched and had to be built by experts who worked in groups to manipulate the heavy stones, which were specially shaped into wedges at the quarry. The Romans had developed an ingenious technique for moving the stones from the quarry and then setting them in place, involving ropes and pulleys. The stones were transported on carts pulled by 10 oxen, who pulled 70 wall stones, weighing 2 tonnes, at a speed of 3 kilometres per hour. It's thought that over the three years of the wall's construction, 30,000 wheeled wooden wagons were used. The mile castles, or fortlands, were usually small and square or rectangular. They stood at each Roman mile mark and were also used as gates. Most of them were made of stone, although some at the western end were built of turf and wood. The mile castles were guarded and each had a garrison of between 20 and 30 soldiers stationed in two barracks behind the building. Turrets were situated every one-third of a Roman mile. Made of stone, there were two of these towers between each mile castle and reached an estimated nine metres high. They would have been used as observation posts. Lastly, rectangular forts were also built, more often than not, on the top of the wall, but some have been found behind it. These larger structures would have served as a base for the soldiers and would have housed a number of buildings. Carabra Fort, which would have been known as Brocolitia, ...possibly meaning badgerhulls... ...has the remains of a temple or Mithraum nearby. This would have been dedicated to the god Mithras... ...who was in turn borrowed from the Greeks... ...and originally the Iranian Zoroastrian deity of light, Mithra. This is one of three sanctuaries at that site. Shrines to local gods, possibly of war... ...have also been found along Hadrian's Wall. They are dedicated to Cossidius and Bellatricadros... ...the former being particularly revered. Further down, in Newcastle... Altars were put up to give thanks for a safe sea voyage, with sacrifices made to appease the gods prior to sailing. After the death of Hadrian in 138 AD, work was begun on the Antonine Wall, which runs between the Firth of Forth and the Firth of Clyde in central Scotland, and led to Hadrian's wall being abandoned between 140 and 160. It was named after Hadrian's successor Antoninus Pius, who never actually visited Britain. Although it had a stone foundation, the wall was constructed mainly of turf and wood, and little of it remains today. Sitting to the north of Hadrian's Wall, the Antonine is a monument to the new emperor's invasion of Scotland, although it was only manned for eight years after completion. When Marcus Aurelius took over, the Antonine Wall was abandoned and Hadrian's was reoccupied, which is a little bit confusing. That's everything for today. Thank you so much for listening. Just a quick reminder what we've got coming up in the rest of the season. We've got another few episodes about Rome and life in the north. There's going to be a guest interview as a bonus at the end of the season. And I'm also going to be outlining what I've learned at an event I'm attending next month. This is a funding event designed for heritage organisations. And I'm particularly interested to learn more about the challenges that curators, marketers, museum educators and others face. If you are attending that event, the Arts Summit, uh, please let me know. If you're a curator and you have some comments you'd like to make, I'd love to hear them. Thank you and please tune in next time. Thank you for listening to the Time Pieces History Podcast. Don't forget to listen next time for more Quick History Facts.